You might like to uh, keep open your Bibles at that passage. We'll be looking at this in a minute. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would take this, your words, and feed our souls from it. Take my words, Lord, that they might be pleasing to you. Amen. Well, uh, we're in this series in Mark's Gospel, and we're getting small pictures coming very rapidly at us. And of course, in our society, education is a very demanding process. Hardly a week goes by when we don't hear something concerning education in the news. Parents, the government, society in general, wants us to have a good educational system. We all want good teachers within our society, but there may well be disagreement upon what makes a good teacher. Well, surely it's someone who stimulates the development of the mind, stimulates inquiry, and helps others to understand the areas of study being taught. Well, in Mark's Gospel, we see that Jesus displays these attributes of what makes a good teacher. Jesus asks demanding questions. He gives demanding answers and illustrates truths through the stories that he tells, what we often call parables. And all of this we see in Mark's Gospel. And we've been seeing that Jesus had been challenging and tested by the religious leaders of the day. The religious leaders of the day had tried to catch him out, tried to get him to deviate from the law of God as given by Moses concerning taxation and the resurrection. And in our passage this morning, we read how Jesus also asks a difficult question and challenges the people that he is speaking to. Now, of course, in comparison to our age that we live in, Jesus was living in a very religious society. The society that had traditions of following Yahweh, the living God, and had traditions of priests and professional servants of God, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians. And Jesus challenged these people and the crowds of people concerning God's kingdom and who he was. And so in our passage this morning, we have a riddle concerning who the Messiah is and then two contrasting pictures of what it means to be a follower and worship of God. But we need, don't we, to go back. If you were with us in the last few weeks, you have been following with us. If you weren't here, I'm sorry, but last week Alex brought us this message concerning what was required of a person and the kingdom of God. Because the overarching question for us this morning is, what is required of the man and woman of God? And what does God require of his people? In verse 28, the scribe asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment to keep? He wanted to trap Jesus into minimizing or breaking or teaching the breaking of the religious laws. Jesus states in his answer to the scribe that there's only one God and it's necessary to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul and strength, and to love others as yourself. 
and unsurprisingly, the religious scribe agrees with him and declares that this is the more important than all the sacrifices, all the burnt offerings that can be offered to God because it shows true worship and true discipleships. In other words, the two commands outweigh the religious activities carried out in the temple. And so last week, Alex brought us that challenge that to be a true follower of a God, we must keep these two commandments. Jesus acknowledged the position of the scribe. He states in verse 34 that this man was very close to the kingdom of God. But as Alex said last week, he was close, but he was not in the kingdom of God. So that was the challenge for us last week. Are we close to the kingdom of God, or are we actually in the kingdom of God? Well, turning to our passage then this morning, let's look firstly at the riddle. Look at verses uh, 35 to 37. It says this, While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? It's a riddle for the people. It was a riddle for the uh, teachers of the law. But the question behind the riddle is this, how great is the Messiah? Jesus displays his teaching skill by asking that demanding question to the scribes. Now to understand this, we must understand that the Jewish people and the Jewish teachers of the law spent much time debating the nature of the Messiah, who they believed would come and rescue God's people. And this was based upon the readings found in the prophets and the Psalms. The scribes taught that the Messiah, the Christ, would be the son of David. We read that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, Psalm 132. This could mean that he would be a king like David, but that he'd also be greater than David. He would win more victories in battle and bring peace to his people. We read of this in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. But we also read in Psalm 110, 110 verse 1, that he is addressed as Lord. So Jesus' question is this, is it enough to call the Messiah the son of David when he's also David's Lord. Now note, Mark is very short on this. He doesn't expand upon the points. But note that Jesus didn't state that he was the Messiah at this point. Now what he wanted them to think of was how great is this Messiah whom we hope for and what will be the work he will actually do. So in this question, Jesus appears to be saying that to think of the Messiah as merely a man with political and military powers is not adequate. No, the Messiah must be the Lord from heaven. Later we read how Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. We see that in John 3, verse 16, Matthew 16, verse 16, for instance. But here, Jesus is challenging them to think, to consider the true nature of the predicted Messiah. 
And for us, surely as we live our lives and witness to our friends, our colleagues and the community in which we're found, the question that we need to put is, who is Jesus? Who is this Messiah? And what are the claims that he has on our lives? Note the reaction of the crowd. Look in verse 37. The crowd, they listened with delight because he spoke in ways they could understand and appreciate. It appears from this short account in Mark that the scribes had no answer to the riddle set by Jesus. And so the question for us tonight, this morning, is who is the Messiah? And what claims does he have upon our lives today and the lives of our friends and society in which we live? So that's the first little picture, if you like, in in this uh, passage this morning. Who is the Messiah? But secondly, the rest of the passage we're given here is we're given two contrasting small pictures concerning what true discipleship looks like. What it looks like to follow the true and living God. And how should God's people live that faith and belief must lead to practical activity within our lives. And there are warnings for us here, there are challenges for us here, and there are encouragements for us here. So let's start with the warnings. Look at verses 38 through to 40. Now firstly we see that these are addressed to those that are professional religious people within their society. They are the Pharisees that teach to the law. And these are the people, of course, that in their day would have been highly educated compared to the common person. They studied the Torah, that was their biblical text. They held a special place within their community. Everyone would have known them. All families would relate to them. And they were probably quite well off compared to other people because they had a job for life. Jesus makes some generalised comments concerning their attitudes and behaviour. He says this, they like to walk around in flowing robes. Now flowing robes refers to the clothing that was required of them when they were carrying out their religious duties within the temple. If you like to think of it, it was a bit like a uniform. So by walking outside the temple in this uniform, they were declaring to all and sundry that they held this position. They wanted to be greeted and acknowledged by all and sundry. It was all an outward show, a show of pride. And Jesus states, they want the most important seats and places at banquets. They wanted to be acknowledged as important people within their community. To add to this, they wanted riches. They coveted wealth which they could obtain by unfair taxation of those that had lost their husbands. In other words, from some of the weaker members of their community. They exploit the poor. To make matters worse, this will be cloaked up in religious activity of displaying their piety. They want to make long prayers in public. Now, of course, Jesus is not saying here that prayer is wrong. No, it's very important. We know that God wants to hear our prayers. But this form of praying goes against Jesus' teaching concerning prayer. Consider what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 
verses uh, 5 to 14. So Matthew 6 is recorded this about Jesus and his teaching concerning prayer. So he says this, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by man. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. And so we've got a warning here, haven't we, that goes right to the heart of behaviour. It's concerning the attitudes of prayer. Jesus was not declaring that it was wrong to be a scribe or a priest in itself. No, the problem was with their attitude, which led to this type of behaviour. They were being proud and hypocritical in their actions. And surely this is a temptation that we all need to guard against, particularly those of us who stand up and proclaim things from the front. But what would this attitude actually lead to? What would this behaviour lead to? Well, look in verse 40. Jesus says, this will lead to judgment and punishment. These actions will lead to judgment. Now, the idea of judgment is, I think, for us, we've discussed this in our, in our home group recently, the idea of judgment is very difficult for us in our society today. But if we find this difficult, look at these, what these three passages which says in the New Testament the following things. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, we read this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether that be good or bad. 1 Peter 4, verse 17, says this, For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Romans 14, verse 12, So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. I believe this is something that we perhaps find difficult in our Christian culture, in our generation to acknowledge today that actions will be judged. Punishment will follow. Of course we believe that Jesus died for our sins and we can have forgiveness through the death of Jesus on the cross. But don't forget that warning we had last week. The scribe was close to the kingdom of God but not in it. Also, to consider the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, when he says this, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. This means that Jesus exposed those people who sounded religious but had no personal relationship with him. 
And so on Judgment Day, our relationship with Christ, our acceptance of him as saviour and our obedience to him will matter. Many people think that if they're good people and say religious things, they will be rewarded with eternal life. In reality, faith in Christ is what will count at the Judgment Day. So that's a really challenging thought for us this morning. The Bible teaches us that judgment will come. God will judge all. This may well happen in eternity, but it can also happen within the world in which we live. It's a sombre warning, isn't it, to all of us. Are we proud? Do we want the limelight? Do we want to put ourselves, our theology, or our church first, rather than acknowledging that we are saved by the death of Jesus? And it's by grace that we are saved. Are we hypocritical in our actions? That's a challenge for me. That's a challenge for us if we're followers of Jesus. We need to be clear, of course, that Jesus isn't saying in this that it's wrong to go out and declare to the community that we are followers of Jesus and that he is Lord. No, what he's warning about, it's our attitudes that point to us as being the centre of the faith and not God. So there we have it, warnings. But let's turn from the warnings to the declarations of Jesus as to what true faith and discipleship should look like. And so we turn to verses 41 to 44. Now in these verses, it's important that we note that Jesus was in the temple, the place of worship where one would expect God's people to be. And if you can picture it in your mind's eye, he was sitting there in the temple and he calls his disciples to him to make sure they hear his teaching concerning the actions of the crowd and the poor woman. And he is watching the giving of the people of the crowd. And Jesus offers us here a contrast, the giving of the wealthy and that of the poor, of discipleship, of what discipleship really looks like. So the positives then, how to live lives that show generosity and commitment, the widow. Look at verses Uh, Look at verses 41 through to 44. He says this, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Now, uh, one of the things we need to uh, note here is the method of giving. And I'd never realised this before I was looking at the commentaries. Apparently what happened was that there were several big containers in the temple. And as the people came in, they gave their money and someone, I don't know who it was, shouted out what they'd given. So Mr Smith had given 150 denarios. Mr Jones had given 300 denarios. This poor widow gave two little coins. So it was very public. Everybody knew what was going on. But the poor woman gave two very small coins. It was all she had. She had nothing left to give or to live on. Now, if you think about it, in the days of no social security, this would mean that she had to rely 
upon God to provide for her basic needs. And so in these verses, we see that Jesus is using a visual scene to teach some important points concerning discipleship and our relationship with God. He is using the picture of the poor widow to teach the crowd the true nature of stewardship and the concept of dependence upon God and what we place our security in. Through this account, we see how real giving is measured by God. That real giving is measured not by how much a person has given, but how much a person has left for themselves. Note the features of the story. All gave an offering to God, both those that had wealth and the widow that didn't. The wealthy gave large amounts of money because they had large amounts from which to give. And Jesus says nothing about the large gifts. They were not wrong at all. They were very generous. But he does alter the values by which they are seen. In human tradition, those that give large amounts would be honoured and respected. However, in God's eyes, the widow gave more because God measured what the person keeps for themselves. And so the widow had much less left. The others had more. She had sacrificed more than the rich. Proportionally, the widow had given all. The wealthy hadn't. So surely the lesson for us all this morning is this, that God, Jesus says that God counts what we have left after we have given and not what we have given. It means we're all equal, doesn't it, in God's eyes. It doesn't matter how wealthy we are, it's what we give. God counts the amount of sacrifice, not the amount of money. The gift that matters is the gift that costs the giver to give. To the thoughtful recipient, it's not the size of the gift that impresses, but the sacrifice that the giver has made in order to give the gift. The greater the sacrifice, the more appreciative the recipient is. And so we see here again, don't we, that Jesus' teaching, as recorded in the Gospels, is revolutionary. If you want to see more of that, look at the uh, Sermon on the Mount, which expands upon this. The result of this is that the poor widow's actions is that she will be left with nothing to live on. So she will have to rely upon God for all her physical needs because she has given away all the money that she had that could be used for food, water and living. Probably in her society's eyes, not a very wise woman and probably also in our society's eyes. She becomes totally dependent upon God. She not only believes this in her heart and her mind, but also in her physical, practical actions. This woman displays a generous heart and attitude that puts God first. Paul writes of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 10 to 11, where he says this, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every every occasion. 
And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. And to me, that's the really challenging but also encouraging point for me and for us. If we are generous, Jesus and God will reward us. And I would like to suggest that if we carried out this teaching of Jesus and acted as the widow did, then there would actually be very few financial problems for the work of God here in our parish and further afield. And also, not only would there be few financial problems for that work, we would probably see more of God's physically providing for his people in real and practical ways. Now, you may well think, Nigel, you've gone over the top here and uh, you've... um, Uh, overemphasize some things against the others. Well, have a look at these quotes concerning giving. I'm going to have the first one put on the screen, and I'm just going to go down there to pick up the clicker. Um, So have a look at the first one. This one was by Charles, uh, you can see by Charles Spurgeon. He said this, In all my years of service to my Lord, I have discovered a truth that's never failed and has never been compromised. That truth is that it's beyond the realm of possibilities that one has the ability to outgive God. Even if I give the whole of my worth to him, he will find to give away, give back to me much more than I gave him. Charles Spurge. Secondly, C.S. Lewis says that famous Christian writer says this I do not believe that one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid that the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. William Carey, Baptist minister to India, says this, I was once young young and now I'm old, but not once have I been witness to God's failure to supply my need when first I have given to the furtherance of his work. He has never failed in his promise, so I cannot fail in his service to him. Then a couple of quotes from anonymous people. Uh, not sure why they're anonymous, but they are. And this one says this, when it comes to giving until it, until it hurts, most people have a very low threshold of pain. Secondly, seek joy in what you give and not what you get. And then lastly, uh, another Christian one from Amy Carmichael, who was a missionary in India, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. So there we have it. There we have it. That's the message from Mark's Gospel this morning. And I've got uh, just a a couple of so questions to finish off with. How are we considering the Messiah? Is the Messiah the Lord of all? The Lord of our lives? The Lord of our life? The Lord of our gifts? The Lord of our wealth, our money? Are we prepared to give all for him? Do we lack the boldness in giving and using what we have for God? Well, there's some questions for you. We can only answer those individually and after considerable thought and prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Mark's Gospel. We thank you for these records of Jesus revolutionary teachings concerning how we live our lives, how we are disciples of you. We pray, Father, that you would help us to 
uh, consider these things as we go through the next week. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us all and as a church to worship you. Amen.